You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Hey, welcome back to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, bark, bark, bark. He's everywhere. He's everywhere. <laughs> it's Jeff McLaughlin. <laughs> yeah, now that you now that you do that that way, I, I for some reason I maybe I remember it from something else, but I remember that. Yes, Jeff, Jeff McLaughlin. Oh, maybe it's um. You know what it sounds like? It's uh, Dom DeLuise in the uh, Cannibal Run movies. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. that's uh, that's from an old radio program called Chicken Man, but they they brought it back in the early '80s as a a promotion for whenever McDonald's debuted the chicken sandwich. Oh, what is up? What are you What are you doing these days? How are you, How are you keeping yourself busy? You got any projects? I mean, the podcast takes up like a lot of my time with all the editing, yeah. but um, I'm still plagued with way too much free time that I need. So, what are you doing? Right. Uh, I, you know, it's, I'm like anybody else. I just, I don't watch a lot of TV anymore. Like we, I know we've talked about this in the past, like rabbit holes and YouTube and stuff, yep. but like, I usually have TV on if I'm cooking in the kitchen. So a lot of stuff that I, that, that I do is like outside of, outside of, you know, j- basic sustenance. So I do a lot of reading. I started doing a project where I write up reviews for Robert Heinlein books and post them to my Tumblr page. I'm still working on short stories. I'm still working on a novel. Like all of this stuff is constantly rolling through. And because like, why the hell not? I started to learn how to do basic, very basic, like rudimentary, probably not to code carpentry and turned a part of my, my basement, which was designed by an insane person into a, into an office that I could use for work. Oh my god, dude! I did that at my house a couple of years ago. I built the um, I built a theater room in my cellar. Yep. Oh, the Death Star. Yes. Yes, and I think that this house was built before there was straight lines because there, <laughs> there was not a straight line to be found in this house anywhere. Yeah. That was challenging. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was challenging. Like I, again, I'm not someone who's used to working with wood, so I, I talked to a lot of people who do this stuff, and including you. And I think what you said was. I said, Bill, I don't know how to do any of this stuff, and you said that never stopped me. No, <laughs> it didn't. Yeah, great quote. Um, you can tell you can tell which side of the cellar I started on and which side I finished because well, the, the quality goes up. Yeah, <laughs> it was like that. If you could peel away the paint to see where I where I did the mudding and taping, you'd be able to tell where I started and where I stopped for sure. Right. In starting to do this with like a screw gun and two by fours and all that sort of and all that sort of stuff, I realized that like we both, Bill and I both went to school. In machine shop where tolerances are like five thousandths of an inch, two thousandths of an inch, five one hundred thousandths of an inch, whatever. Yeah. And I'm I'm sitting there and I'm I'm desperately trying to make these two two by fours square and the right size to within like five thousandths of an inch. 
And I was, oh, right, I was talking yeah. to, yeah, I was talking to my girlfriend. She's like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "It's not the right size. It's wrong. It's off by, it's off by almost a quarter inch. I don't understand it. I got to take this all apart and put it together." She goes, "What are you building?" I said, "I'm putting a wall up, but it's going to be right. Like the tolerance has to be, I don't know, five thousandths of an inch." She goes, "What are you building? A plane?" I said, "No." She goes, "Are you going to fly your basement?" I said, "I'm not going to fly my basement anymore." She's like, "Well, a quarter inch is nothing. An eighth of an inch is nothing." No yeah, one's th- going to know. And I was like. I th- oh. Yeah, I think the carpenters usually work within one sixteenth of an inch. She's like, just, it's fine. Just keep going. <laughs> what are you going to launch your house into space? <laughs> you're, gonna, you're not going to have to land this thing, so don't worry about it. <laughs> Yeah, my uh, my project uh, right now. I have a I have a brother. I've mentioned him before, and my brother is a published author, and he's working on his second book. And he's asked me to do the artwork for the book. This is out of my wheelhouse. I am a mimic artist. You know, whenever I do stuff, I draw I draw portraits mainly. Right. And uh, what he's asking me to do is more along the lines of graphic design. You know, right. w- which is not my skill set, but. Much like building my cellar, that's you know never stopped me from trying. I guess so. I'm I'm working in in that medium right now. And people who are not artists don't seem to understand sometimes that art is specialized. It's like being a lawyer or being yeah. a doctor. Yep. You know, yep. I'm good at portraits, but graphic design might not be. The, you know, well, put it this way: somebody at work one time asked me to d- d- you know to design their tattoo for them, and I was like, that's not my kind of art and they're like well can you just try and i was like well put it this way if i was a real estate lawyer and you were on trial for murder you wouldn't want me defending you in court (laughs) right you know that's a bad idea uh so i did not design that tattoo i am having fun working on my brother's project because like i said it's it's something new i'm learning a new skill set and i'm actually working digitally so i'm doing everything on my tablet nice that's That's and that's a change, right? Because your usual medium is uh, pencils and charcoal. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I'm used to like, you know, smudging everything with like my thumbs and Q-tips and toilet paper to get the different shades and stuff like right. that. And n- now I'm working in color, which is right. again out of my wheelhouse. Uh, so yeah, that's what I've been doing. And I'll tell you, it's a time killer. I ha- you know I was getting bored and I had to get out of my house, so I just I drove to the beach. And I, you know, I sat in my car in front of the waves and I just drew. And before I knew it, the sun was going down. I was like, oh my God, I've been here for like two or three hours just working on this. Wow. So yeah, it's, it's a good, it's a good time killer. Anytime, anytime you find yourself in that kind of a creative endeavor, time just van it ceases to exist as a thing. It's like, you're like, you're all of a sudden you're in the box with Schrodinger's cat, right? So let's, let's start a podcast. I have my trivia question for you. Ah, Excellent. All right. We're all familiar with Maxwell House Coffee, who has been using the uh, catchphrase good to the last drop for as long as I can remember. But that catchphrase was not coined by them. It was coined by a U.S. president, and he was talking about coffee when he said it. Hmm. So which president was this? Which president was this? Yeah, I'm going to have to think about this and uh, give you an answer at the end of the show. All right, so this is the week beginning February the 8th, and I, I think it's your turn to start, right? It is indeed, Okay. Uh, based on a, a non-scientific coin flip that we did some several years ago. Yes. 1992, February 8th. Bill and I have talked a lot about music on this show, and we often reminisce about novelty songs, and very often we talk about my strange love for weird dance music. So in 1992, on yeah. February 8th. I love song, novelty music, yeah. The song I'm Too Sexy by, <laughs> I'm not sure if they're actually a band of anything, right, said Fred. 
peaks at number one, bringing forever into our lexicon of still daily usage phraseology. Mm-hmm. I'm too sexy for my cat. I'm too sexy for my shirt. I'm so sexy. It hurts. Yep. An incredibly silly, danceable song. Uh, I myself am too sexy for Milan. <laughs> <laughs> or Japan. Yeah. Interesting group. I mean, two muscle-bound, you know, uh, shaved head dudes. One on bass, one on vocals. Uh, I'm not sure if they were brothers. They could have been, but who knows? You see two white guys uh, with shaved heads, you assume. They're either brothers or they're about to murder you. Yeah, that's right. They're skinheads, yeah. <laughs> so it turns out they are brothers. Uh, they... They had that one song, um, I'm I'm too sexy, and then the follow up was uh, like when I'm not sexy anymore. Yeah, or? I know. And then that no, they had a follow up single, and it was called "Don't Talk, Just Kiss." That was such a smash hit that I don't remember it at all. And apparently, yeah. they had another single like right after that too, called "Deeply Dippy." I'm gonna guess that those two singles were probably only released and only charted and only briefly in the UK. Yeah, that's the thing with um with novelty music as it can it's going to be a smash hit because it's a novelty. It's not built to last. It's not built right. to sustain. It's a cute and fun song. Another part of the vernacular, you don't hear it as much, but you heard it, you know, some 20 years ago is, you know, I shake my little tush on the catwalk. <laughs> on the catwalk. Yeah. On the catwalk, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yep. And, and it's it's funny the way that something that, that ultimately can transcend its country of origin, usually it's a novelty song, or it seems like a novelty song at least to, for us yep. here in the U.S., when there's a history that the band might have in where they come from. So think of like Chumbawamba, who had a bunch of records before Tub Thumping sort of crashed here in the U.S. and right. went up the charts. But they had tons of singles over in England. And yeah, and none of it sounds never made it over here. And none of it sounds like tub thumping either. Right. It's true. It's like you're gonna be sorely disappointed if you buy that album. Same thing with um uh you remember the band the Butthole Surfers? They had that song. Remember them? Yeah, remember that song. My gosh, yes. Yeah, they had that song. I, I have yeah, Pepper. Yeah, that's on right. Pepper. But if you bought a Butthole Surfers album thinking you're gonna hear more stuff like Pepper, yeah, you could just hear the slide whistle. Gone. Yeah, yeah, they're they're weird. Yeah. They're noise art band. I have I have weasels rip my flesh. That's the record of theirs I have downstairs. Yeah. Yep. Interesting music. So yep. Right said Fred. And one more thing about Right said Fred. They were a novelty band with a novelty song, and even their band name, Right said Fred, is a novelty song. Mm-hmm. It's actually pretty funny. It's a it's it's a song about a bunch of movers trying to get. Apparently, it, it, they never say what they're moving, but I think it's a piano. They're trying to move it into a house, and they can't get it through the door, so they tear down the door. They can't get it through, so they tear down the wall. They ultimately like just destroy the whole house trying to move this thing in. Huh. Yep. So They're too sexy for the door. Yeah, too sexy for the ceiling. Yep. <laughs> All right, moving on to February the 9th, 1988. The video game Contra is released for the Nintendo NES. I'm pretty sure I remember this game. This is the one you could shoot up. As well as forward and backward. Yep. It was uh you ran and you killed a bunch of people. Yeah. Like a Rambo type clone, right? Right. Yeah. I mean you basically just described um everything. <laughs> <laughs> you would have to really stretch hard to, to be a little more vague than that. Contra was actually it was actually an arcade game. It was an arcade game right. first. But Contra will go down in history as being, if not the first, at least the most famous 
video game with a cheat code known as the oh. yep known as the contra code or the konami code huh. which is up up down down left right left right ba start huh. and uh, and what and what what did the cheat code in contra get you everything like I, it was unlimited lives i believe oh okay yep. that's a good thing to have uh, i remember that game was hard if i'd known that and had that code then i would have used it right, yeah and, and like i said it wasn't the first of the cheat codes Prior to that, there was the uh, – do you remember the Game Shark and the Game Genie? Yeah, I remember the Game Shark. I remember the ads for it in like all the video game magazines and computer magazines I used to get. Right. You could plug it into the, whatever system you had yeah, and, then, and then plug and then the – the cartridge goes on top of it. Right. Yeah. And then you can get like all your unlimited lies or whatever. It, right. it would essentially let you hack into the, the video game. The Konami code was built into the game. You know, you hit in the code. Right. And start the game, and now you have unlimited uh, lives. Now, those are typically used to do things like test features, right? So that, that the developers can jump to certain places in the game yeah. that, in the test version, and they just happen to be retained when the game goes live. Sure. That's like, I think we talked about that a couple of uh, episodes ago. We were talking about the original Space Invaders, and the guy that created it, he could get past the first wave, but he, was, he wasn't good at his own video game. He couldn't even get past the second right. wave, yeah. Making food in your own kitchen, but it doesn't taste good. Yes. I have macaroni. I made macaroni and cheese popular. Really? Well, How does your macaroni and cheese taste? Terrible. Yeah, he's a he's a pizza chef that's lactose intolerant. <laughs> he has celiac disease. Every time he touches the pizza, <laughs> it dies a little bit. He's lactose intolerant. Has celiac disease. He basically just drinks the tomato sauce out of the can. Oh, and now I got acid <laughs> reflux. Son of a bitch. Ah. Well, thinking about like the cheat codes, like when I was playing Grand Theft Auto Four yep. with my son. I used to jokingly call it the Parent of the Year edition because he was little. He knew all the he had a, he had all the codes to that game memorized. So you could do things like get a motorcycle would just pop in front of you, so you could take off, or you could get unlimited ammunition, or you could make the cops go away. You could make all the cops come. And we we used to play this thing called Most Extreme Elimination Challenge, where we would try and get as many police officers as we could to chase us, and then we would die the most spectacular way possible. And in doing so, I was like, Ian, what's the what's the code for unlimited ammunition? And he goes like, up, down, left, right. One three one three whatever you dialing this number into the phone right and I I'm like I'm doing it I'm trying to get health and 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 I finish the code and a boat just drops in front of me <laughs> clunk onto the street <laughs> right as I'm killed by the police. <laughs> Your son is disarmingly brilliant. Like I'm yeah, I'm almost terrified of him in a way. Like you remember in Better Off Dead, Lane Meyer's younger brother that like yeah Badger. He built a space shuttle in his bedroom. That's Ian in my mind. Like one of these days, yeah, just, I mean, I know he's not—he's not a kid anymore, but I still see that happening. Uh, another uh, like famous cheat code was whenever Mortal Kombat came out. Oh, those days were so innocent. Remember back then, like what a controversial thing Mortal Kombat was because there was yeah. there was blood in the video game. My God, he rips out—he rips out his digital spine. Oh my God, the humanity. What, 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 the, what about the children? Yeah. What somebody think of the children? So when the games were first released, there was no blood. In the Nintendo version, the Super Nintendo version, there was like the blood was gray. I guess they were taking the uh, Evil Dead Two mode of thought. You know, right. there's too much blood. Let's make it black so we don't get an X rating. Right. And then um, yep. if you had the Genesis version, to if you typed in a, the code spelled out Abacab. Yeah. Abacab was the, the code to get the blood, which was easy to remember because Abacab was a song and album by the band Genesis, Sega Genesis, yes. Abacab. Ah, 
All right, so let's move on to the 10th. What do you got? February 10th, 1996, the IBM computer Deep Blue becomes the first computer to win a game of chess against the reigning human chess champion, Gary Kasparov. At first, this sounds amazing. And then I remembered, like, I've been wailed on by computer chess since I was a kid. Yep. I mean, admittedly, I'm not Gary Kasparov, but I'm also not a computer, so... I have never, ever once, never won a game of chess in my life. I am the least, like, if you, we were an army and you put me in charge of strategy, forget it. No, we're dead. Surrender. Just surrender now. I am so right. awful at strategy, stuff like that. I'm terrible. No, I, I like to play chess and, and it's fun to play, but, like, I've never been able to play against, play well against, like, machine, even computer-based chess. It's just, I don't know, there's too many moves and I'm not, I don't play it consistently enough to do it. But Kasparov's a guy who beat everybody. Mm -hmm. Like a million billion times, right? He's a fantastic chess player. I think the first time IBM and uh, Deep Blue and he played, he beat Deep Blue and then finagled some other additional programming into it. And then it came back. And I think it beat him like two out of six games or three out of five games or something like that. Again, it's the first time it, it ever beat a, a reigning chess champion. I don't know that there have been any matches like that since. Talking about like AI, like playing chess. Do you remember that they actually had a chess game for the Atari 2600? No. Yeah. I don't remember them being a chess game for the Atari 2600. Think about the processor on an Atari 2600. <laughs> Can you only play like three moves, right? And then the game is over? No, the, thi like 4K the thing was, you know, the way AI works with chess is the program will examine the board, examine every move possible, you know, that could go forward, and then think ahead like five moves and see which is the, you know, the best move to make. But the processor on Atari 2600 is laughingly slow by today's standards. It would sometimes, you would make a move, and then the computer would sit there and think about its next move. Sometimes 15, 20 minutes, 45 minutes, it would just sit there, Thinking about its next move, you're like, oh, well, this shit's broken. But yeah, it would sit there and think about its next move. It's like, I don't know, man. I'm, I, I guess chess is fun, but I, I can't commit that kind of time. Yeah, that's crazy time. I never would have um, known that there was an Atari 2600 version of chess that, that could try and think its way through that long with such a tiny amount of memory available for programming. But yeah, that's go figure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like the the average program size for an Atari 2600 game is 4K. Yeah. You know. Some of the early ones was only 2K. Imagine programming a chess game with only 2K. Right. Yep. We don't have checkmate in this game. <laughs> in this game I think know. that was the game plan that it took so long that everybody just gave up. They probably never finished the game just figuring that everybody would just get like frustrated and shut it off. That's what I did. I'm sure it had fantastic graphics too, being an Atari 2600. Yeah. It was like blue and less blue, I think, with the colors. Right. All right. All right, moving on to February the 11th, 1942, is the debut of Archie Comics. Wow, they've been around for a wicked long time. I had no idea they were that yeah, old. Yeah, I, I mean, to me, like, just by, like, judging by, like, the way they dressed, and I always kind of, like, linked, I guess in my pea brain mind as a kid, I linked Archie kind of with Happy Days, with that whole 1950s nostalgia. You know, I, I guess it was, like, the, the Letterman sweaters, that everybody seemed to yeah, wear, right, you know, right, both right. in Archie comics and on Happy Days. I kind of lumped them together in the 50s. But no, Archie started a good 10 years before that in the 40s. Yeah, like World War II. Amazing. And it's 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 interesting that that, that, that would premiere in 42 when we were in, you know, embroiled in World War II, both in Europe and in Asia yeah. at that point, too. You would think that that comic would be, you know, once you get comfortable with Archie and Jughead and Betty and Veronica or whatever, it would reflect the time and they would be like, you know, Archie and Jughead go off to fight in or something. But no, it never it never does that. They always stay as teenagers yeah. and they stay. I, I've always 
associated them with what being a teenager was like, even though sock hops and malted milk things and, and whatever they do is just nothing that we ever had as teenagers because that was long gone. But those comics in that milieu has stayed on. Stayed no, uh, yeah, and like think about like other cartoons and, well, that wasn't a cartoon, not until the 60s, but think about like other comic books at that time that were like horrifically racist and propaganda you know, driven, you know, because right. of the war, the right. the very, you know, cartoonish and, you know, racist depictions of, uh, of Asians and African-Americans at that time. Right. But that never really happened in Archie Comics. Archie Comics is just wholesome. At least it was till, uh, <laughs> until Riverdale came around a few years ago where, you know, where it, it took the Archie Andrews cinematic universe, so to speak. And it was like, hey, what if these teenagers, instead of drinking malts and going to saw cops, were clinically depressed and f***ing one another? <laughs> well, that actually kind of comes out of out of a, a skew that the books had maybe, I don't know, eight to ten years ago called Life with Archie, which was a, a trade magazine that, that was put up by Archie Comics. It was edited by, I think, Al Milgram and some other people who were like old school Marvel and DC guys from the 80s. Yep. Technically retired now, but work on this book. Half The first half of the book is Archie's married to Veronica and they live in Riverdale still. Veronica is a, an executive and Archie's kind of trying to find his way. He finally way. settled down, huh? I thought, I thought, I thought then, sure, they'd be then, like exploring polygamy at that point. And then, well, and then in the second half of the book, Archie's married to Betty and they go off to the city so he can find his fame as a guitar player. They bo- both of them have affairs, and there's all this horrible stuff that happens, and there's like drinking, and Mr. Weatherby dies, and it's it's really really grim and gritty. It's compelling to read, but it's gritty as gritty as all get out. I have somewhere in my in my stack of comic books that I foolishly bought in the '90s, thinking they'd be worth something someday. Yep. Oh, we all fell for that one. But I have an Archie Punisher crossover that is hilarious. I'm sure it is. Yeah, that whole like uh, buying comic books to finance your kids' education thing—that <laughs> was a mistake. I still have all my books from the from when I was like before I had a driver's license. Oh, really? So that's one of the first time I stopped buying comics was when I had a driver's license. Yeah. All right. So moving on to the 12th. What do you got? February 12th, 1994. On the very first day of the Lillehammer Olympics in Sweden, some folks break into the museum in Oslo and steal Edvard Munch's painting, the pastel version of The Screams, pastel on cardboard in a wooden frame, and they leave a note that says, thanks for the crappy security or something akin to that, uh, hanging in its space because they just broke in, clipped the wire, and took the painting and (laughs) ran off. It wasn't recovered for several months, but it was found in a motel of all places. The guy who ultimately had stolen it had stolen a Munch painting 10 years before, so I guess they didn't have to look all that hard to find the guy (laughs) because he'd already done it once. That's hilarious. Um, Well, that guy's really into Munch, huh? Yeah. uh, yeah, he was really into he was really into him. So so he's like, well, maybe the first time he was just practicing, yep. but he got arrested for that one, and I think he went to jail. So came came back out and did the same thing again. Spiced up the first day of the Olympics, and I think that the the idea was that no one would be paying attention to anything going on anywhere except for in Lillehammer as the Olympics got underway. Ultimately, that's what happened because they were able to make off with this painting, and and it'd be gone for a few months now. Now they don't they don't put that painting up anymore. Either that guy's still out there. <laughs> They don't put that painting up anymore because they're afraid some other idiot will break it. It's, and maybe it. it's kind of like you know the Shakespeare superstition where you you don't call it by its name. You say this the Scottish play. The Scottish yeah, play. Yeah. Getting back to the monk painting though, that painting, uh, the scream. There's like eight or nine different versions of it. There's a lithograph of it at the MoMA in New York. I saw that one. It's a I mean, it's a famous painting. They use it for uh, Dead Kennedys Killed the Poor. 
I remember that. The single, yeah, they killed, they use it for the, that kill the poor. Maybe I knew this story somewhere in my self-conscious because I have a recurring nightmare. Like it happens all the time <laughs> that I come home and my house has been broken into. Like I get in the house and everything's gone. Like the rooms are just, oh, everything. Like the rooms are empty. And then it got to a point where I would have this dream so often that the, the, in the dream, the person that did it started leaving me notes like, ha ha, got you again. <laughs> All because you'd seen a lithograph of the yeah, painting. Yeah, I think I, there's, there's a connection right there. He's probably a Swedish yeah. guy. When you read the notes in your dream, does it sound like the Swedish No, chef? it sounds like uh, Bjorn from ABBA, uh, interestingly enough, yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you for all of the many things. <laughs> thank you for your PlayStation. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Lovely furniture that seems very easy to assemble. I get home and all my, all my furniture has been disassembled with an Allen wrench. <laughs> Damn you! <laughs> Damn you, Swedish guy stealing the munch painting. All right. Moving on to February the 13th. Uh, We got a twofer on this day, and they're interestingly related. February the 13th. 1578. Boy, seems like yesterday. Tycho Bray first sketches the Tychonic system of the solar system. Now, what that is, is we had long believed at that time that the Earth was the center of the universe. Our friend Tycho had drawn out a version of the solar system where both the Earth and the Sun were the center of the universe because he didn't want to, you know, get beyond the, what do they call that? Heliocentric? No, what do they call it? Yes. Is that the when the Earth? Uh, Earth-centric yeah. is, is fine okay. enough for Terra-centric, I guess. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, the Earth-centric or, or well, the Earth is the center of the universe. He didn't want to step too far away from that. Unlike his successor in 1633, Italian astronomer and balls of steel owning Galileo Galilei, <laughs> He, go, he arrives in Rome for trial before Inquisition for professing belief that the Earth, it, in fact, revolves around the sun. So here's, uh, here's Galileo, 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 in four-part harmony, uh, saying that, yeah, the Earth, the Earth is not the center of the universe. And the Catholic Church was like, off with his head! Right, yeah. He, yeah, they locked him up for uh, quite some time. Yeah, they, they broke his telescope yeah. for sure. <laughs> Um, what's what's interesting about about Tycho Brahe's system is again they're both based on observational astronomy yeah. right so you base it on what you can see you've, you've got certain markers that are always in the same place every night and in Brahe's model the Earth and Sun revolve around each other and then everything else revolves around the Earth and Sun and in circular orbits and then there's a band of stars that are always orbiting around the Earth and Sun but we can only see them when they're on the side that the Sun is not yeah. there's some solar systems out there that are binary systems like that uh, where there's there's two suns and then the planets revolve around those two suns which revolve around each other so like just picture kind of like magnetic ball bearings kind of like swirling around each other i've seen that experiment yes kind of sort of and and that's that's actually a pretty good description of of what we can you know see with the technology that we picked up and understanding we have of how the mechanics of the solar system work from galileo less so from tycho brahe but again brahe was working with a different set of tools than galileo was as well so like kind of like tattooing in star wars that was a binary system there was two suns which is why that planet is just death sand like why are you living there yes it's well it's because they had such a, a strong business in binary language of moisture yeah, yeah. evaporators land was cheap let's let's just call a spade a spade yeah all right and then wrapping up the week on valentine's day 
Oh, what yes. do we have? What do we have for such a romantic day? Uh, February 14th, 1849 in New York City. Uh, James K. Polk is the first of the U.S. presidents to have his picture taken, his photograph taken. This doesn't sound like a big to-do. James, James uh, Polk, however, which was the name of the high school that Al Bundy went to. That's right. His photo was taken by a guy named Matthew Brady. If you don't know who Matthew Brady is, Matthew Brady was the, f- maybe not the first, but certainly the most famous of the photographers who would go on to document the carnage of the Civil War, as well as other things in the contemporary period between 1849 and, you know, 18, 1880 or so. But he's most well known for taking pictures of the Civil War and the aftermath of the Civil War battles on the battlefield. And the pa- the pictures are brutal. Typically, like, war scenes were captured in paint before, so there's an interpretation between the person who's making the painting and what they see on the battlefield and what they decide to capture, right? right? Camera doesn't do that. It just takes a picture of what's there. And it leaves the impression up to the person who views it as opposed to the person that yeah, makes it. Yeah, up until it. Photoshop was a thing, the camera didn't really lie. It's the picture you can see on online, Polk looks very, very perturbed by the whole ordeal of having his photo taken, which at the time probably required him to sit still for about 10 seconds right. with the aperture open onto this, this plate covered with nitrate to go off and be developed. It's an interesting point in that since that day, the presidents have always been photographed in that sort of style. And yet every president still has a presidential portrait painted to place in the White House, even though the tradition and the technology changed in 1849. Older tradition hasn't gone away. So there are still paintings of everybody up to President Trump in the White House. Yep. Like you said about the, the face that he made when we were going through the show that just reminded me like whenever there's like a new technology everybody seems to be like ghastly afraid of it right. the very first thing that was sent over like a telegraph uh you know you know morse code or whatever the first thing that was ever sent said what hath god wrought <laughs> which is <laughs> jeez way to be optimistic there morse huh? right yes just samuel F. B. morse and, and like robert oppenheimer when he sees the atomic bomb for the first time go off and he's like i have become death <laughs> and i'm sure that the first dude who made pop tarts right <laughs> he looks at the pop tart he's like the world will burn <laughs> It's got strawberry filling, yep. you know. I'm someone. My brother almost burnt this fucking house down one time, because you to microwave a pop tart, you only need to put it in the microwave for like eleven seconds, right? My brother like wrapped it up in a couple of paper towels and put it in for like two minutes, and next thing you know, it's oh next thing you know, it's just like smoke just pouring out of the thing because it caught fire. Yeah, <laughs> it did. It that didn't like mutate into some horrible creature and then run <laughs> off on its own to become a thing. <laughs> My God, it's yep. glowing. <laughs> uh, and it's frosted. What Rah. did you learn, Dorothy? Yeah. Jeez, Celebrity Jeez, birthdays. Not. February the 8th, 1937. A man by the name of Joe Raposo. Now, if you're from if you're from this area, Joe Raposo could be at least eight or nine people that you went to high school with. <laughs> I was going to say, did we go to <laughs> yeah. high school with him? Wasn't he in welding? Yeah. The name Joe Raposo, which around here is not very remarkable. And guess what? He was from around here. Born in 1937, Joe Raposo of Fall River. Right, exactly. Everybody's like, yeah, so freaking what? Who is he? Well, Joe Raposo is the man who wrote the theme to Sesame Street. Hey, all right. I know that song in and out. And he he also wrote C is for Cookie. That's good enough for me. He Uh wrote the uh, award-winning song, It Ain't Easy Being Green. He also wrote the alphabet song, uh, Ap the Decky, Jacobin Op, It's Still That Big Bird sang. Oh, yeah. 
And yeah, Carol yeah. Spinney sang that song to me. It's one of my favorite memories. Yep. Joe wow. Raposo. Uh, that's well, you've always wondered. That's his name. Wow, that's cool. I had no idea he'd done that much yep. stuff and or that he did any of that stuff, yeah, to be honest yep. with you. Joe Raposo. God love you. All right. So moving on to the ninth. Who do you got? February 9th, 1976. That's a spirit. Charlie Day. The actor who's sort of jumped to fame as a cast member on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, but has parlayed that into a career in films. He's been in both of the uh, uh-huh. Pacific Rim movies, among some other stuff as well. And uh, he tends to be very funny, an interesting guy. And I, I sort of like that he... You got to start and it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Although he was in pilots for other TV shows and decided to not pursue those so that he could make the show with his friend that became It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And his, I think it's like 15 seasons yeah, of that show. He was great in Horrible now. Bosses. Yes. Yeah, he was. He, and it's pretty yeah. much the same character. That, as that is an underrated movie. I, I need to go yes. back and watch that one. All right. Speaking of movies and things I should go back and watch, uh, February the 10th, 1906. A man by the name of Lon Chaney Jr., whose father was Lon Chaney, but he's not a junior. His real name is like Creighton or something <laughs> something along those lines. But yep. Lon Chaney, the man of a thousand faces, makeup artist extraordinaire, his son, best known for playing the werewolf in the Wolfman movie. He also yep. played the mummy and Frankenstein in some of the sequels. He also did some stuff outside of the universal horror genre, which I know sounds maddening, but he did he did a couple mm-hmm. of smaller bit parts and one really big one where he played Lenny in the first screen adaptation of, of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck. And he was great playing opposite Burgess Meredith. He's the one who sort of makes Lenny, the Lenny that we know like the, tell me about the rabbits, George. That was, that was him. That was all him. Yeah, yep. big classic dangerous dummy. It's always suggested that he was so drunk that he couldn't play the Frankenstein's monster correctly, and he kept putting <laughs> the prop chairs down, rearing, and then he picked the prop chair up like he's going to smash it. He was supposed to smash it. What, I, what I've what i read in, in further research is that he didn't understand really live television, so he was doing all this stuff in front of the camera oh, like I it was see. all going to be edited, and he was waiting for someone to tell him to break stuff, so he never did it. Uh, I don't know whether or not that's true, but you <laughs> could watch that episode on... Yeah. May, uh, moving on to the 11th. What do you got? February 11th, 1974. Let me tell you, Americans. Oh, no. <laughs> the Illuminati and the people of Coconut Grove. Bohemian Grove. <laughs> Coconut Grove. And uh, without me, Alex Jones himself, radio host and conspiracy theorist, fighter of lizard men, believer in UFOs. Gay frogs. Don't, for, don't forget the gay the frogs. Sky. Not attracted to frogs anymore. I've the, had therapy. The gay frogs but blew out the birthday frogs. candles on my birthday cake. Riveting. Yep. Riveting so sexually. Alex Jones, beloved talk show host, friend of the podcast. Friend of the podcast and general fucking wackadoo. I, I <laughs> love that whenever his wife was divorcing him and then trying to get it to the point where he should be kept away from their children. Use like parts of his podcast as evidence like this guy is crazy listen to him and then he was like oh it's a, it's a character I'm not, I'm not really like that the gay frogs are the ones that say i'm like that <laughs> she may have photographs of me with frogs but those those, those can be fake my, my favorite description of him is pants on head crazy <laughs> I've, I've heard him described as rock fucking insane. Which, which, which is- <laughs> All right, get, uh, getting away from uh, the Illuminati and moving oh, on to and, and moving on to the founders of the Illuminati. <laughs> uh, sharing a birthday on February the twelfth, eighteen oh nine. Both Charles Darwin yep. and Abraham Lincoln were both born on the same day in the same year. It's it's funny you could think they're both destined for greatness based on on them both being born on the same day. Yeah. Aside from uh, the thousands upon thousands of other people who were born that day who were destined for not greatness. Destined for as great as plain pancakes are. Right. Yes. Ah, porridge. 
Yeah. So anyway, yep. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, we we know him as a famous vampire uh, hunter from that yeah. movie. And uh, and Charles Darwin, who had a pet beagle, I think, right? Yes. Uh, something <laughs> like that. Yes. He, he wanted to know how the uh, how, how the beagle came to be. Uh, Lincoln, Lincoln also had his picture taken by Matthew Brady, that famous photo of him sitting with the clearly visible like moles and stuff on his face. That was all captured in a Brady picture. Moving on to February the 13th. What do you have? February 13th, 1997. Michael Jackson Jr., son of Michael Jackson, born in Beverly Hills, California. No relation to Michael Jackson. <laughs> yeah. He's he's much closer in hue to Sir Paul McCartney, the long-dead <laughs> Beatle, uh, who sold off the Beatles' uh, archives to Michael Jackson. You know, it could very well be Paul McCartney's kid. I could just see him like, you want to buy all my records, do you? Well, I'm going to fuck your wife <laughs> i'll fix you i'm gonna give your wife a good rogering i will you'll never know it was me so <laughs> he was born with a mop top and an i hate john lennon t-shirt on <laughs> and rube is about his own death well, your, your child <laughs> appears to have died in childbirth but he's right there <laughs> all right and wrapping up the birthdays february the 14th boy this name just rolls right off the tongue check this out george washington gale ferris jr uh, b- wow. Yep, February 14th, 1859, inventor of the Ferris wheel, named after his- Well, I didn't think he was the inventor of the George Washington, because uh, he no, was yeah. long dead before 1859. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, yeah, uh, George Washington Gale Ferris Jr. invents the Ferris wheel. It was for the 1893- Columbia Exposition in Chicago. Yep, it was 250 feet in diameter. That's a big wheel. Yeah, that's a big- Watch a big wheel turning around. It held- Keeps on turning. Over- 2,000 people. <laughs> it was very popular. Sounds great. Yeah, yeah. it was very popular. Now, and- you're lucky that your friend Bill is a math geek because I did the math. If it is 250 feet in diameter, it took 20 minutes to make one revolution. Yep. Okay. Uh, so lucky for you, I'm a math geek. I did the math. I ran the numbers. That comes out to a velocity that's sure to mess up every hairdo on that Ferris wheel. It turned at... 0.5 miles an hour. <laughs> that's that's not fast at all. But again, it's not meant to be. Ferris wheels aren't thrill rides, right? Now, so. uh, hold on. I want you to just like picture this in your mind's eye for a second. That means it only moved three times as fast as a minute hand on a clock. <laughs> I'm moving almost that fast right now, and I'm just sitting at my desk. So I know how fast that is. Yeah. So, I mean, basically, basically just looking at it, you could barely perceive its movement. <laughs> yes. It's like, woo. Yes. Yeah. It was. It's definitely different than Ferris wheels that you see now. It was like I don't know if you've seen pictures of it, but it looks like train cars. Yeah. That are held on it, and they each one held like twenty people or forty people or something, and they were all sitting sort of back to back, looking out a bank of windows over the fairgrounds. I don't know what powered it though, because it's a nuclear powered Ferris wheel. Well, it has to have something that makes it go a, a half a mile an hour. But I don't know if it was powered by steam or if it was powered by electricity. Uh, I'm a big fan of of carnival music too, like you you know the calliope and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, but one time at uh, I was at a amusement park and they had one of those things going, and you know it was cute, but it was also the worst song ever. All right, what do we have loaded up? What do we have loaded up in the uh, in the barrel in the cannon for uh, for this week's worst song ever? This week's worst song ever. It was the number one song this week in 1979 by former singer for the Small Faces and at the time contemporary current white guy breaking into disco in a bad way, trying to keep his career alive. Rod Stewart with the much covered version of his song "Do You Think I'm Sexy," which no one did. What the freak is it? 
considering it's Rod Stewart, and I, I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe things are different now. I don't know how how middle aged American women were, you know, forty years ago. Yeah, I don't know. That, to me, that guy just didn't really ooze sex appeal. He had a nah. he had a voice that was like, D- "Would you like a lozenge? I have a lozenge. Would you like a right. Would you like a lifesaver?" Because he's like. Ah! What's her name there? Joan Rivers famously pointed out that the guy had a you know horrific complexion and right. and his hair was like his hair just like was a mess. It's like do I think you're sexy? Not particularly. No, I don't. <laughs> if, right. if if you're asking, I'm answering no, I don't. But you know what? <laughs> uh I actually like this song. <laughs> Oh, it's a turnabout is fair play. Yep. So here we go. So okay, so before I tell you why I don't like this song, yep. you tell me why you do. Um it certainly isn't because of the lyrics, because I'm looking at the lyric list right now, and the first line is sugar, sugar, ooh, ooh. And then, you know, it's it's a bunch of like, like if lyrics could undulate, that's what these lyrics are doing, okay? Yeah. And, it, it, but I don't know. It's not the, so much the lyrics or the song or anything about to sing it. It's musically. I like the... I like the riff. Okay, I, fair I, enough. Maybe I just have different eyes and ears for music. But that that riff, that what I just hummed that I'm not going to do again, to me, that riff undulates like what they're trying to say with the music. You follow me? It paint, yeah, I follow Musically you. and lyrically, it paints the same picture. It, I just think it's saying something stupid. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, just, that's just me. But yeah, I, I understand. I understand the hook for that riff. Yeah. I get that. Yeah, I, li- I like the hook. I, I it's one of those songs that I'm going to put in the same category as Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen, where I like covers of the song, not necessarily the song itself. How's that? Okay, fair enough. So this falls into that short time pantheon of acts that don't make disco music suddenly making disco music. Yes. Like Kiss with "I Was Made for Loving You," which is atrocious. Oddly enough, not the worst song on that album. <laughs> <laughs> no, not the, the, I wasn't. I was, I'm not, not going to criticize the whole record, like, but that song just sucks on. It sucks the life out of the room when it's on. Yeah. And there's a Rolling Stones one too. But again, it would have the same amount of gravitas as if John Denver did it, like a disco song in 1979 or 78. No one knows you for this. Like, why are you doing this? This is clearly a cash grab. You just you're not you don't like disco. You're not trying to do this because it's artistic. You do this because you want to you want a chart. Yeah. Because this is what's charting right now. Two years down the road, you're going to disavow if this song ever existed. <laughs> this song, to me, is it smacks of that. And I don't dislike Rod Stewart so much. Like, I, I think Maggie Mae is a great song. Yep. The one or two times a year that I hear it and don't go, oh, God, it's Rod Stewart. But his voice is, it always makes me want to clear my throat yep. when I'm listening to him sing. And that that hook that you like, yep. I find supremely annoying. In this song. Shut up. You know, you could do a cover of, uh, you know, I Was Made For Loving You. That's, it's perfectly rational. It'll sound great. <laughs> I'll probably tap my foot when I hear it. But when I hear Kiss do it, it's like, I can, I can see Gene Simmons in the background going like, we need a disco song. Because everybody's doing uh, disco. Uh, actually, it was Paul Stanley that wrote that song. And Gene Simmons, that's the one song that he absolutely hates. He hates that uh, of all songs, the one that made them the most money. He hates that song. There's some interesting covers of "Do You Think I'm Sexy?" Like I said, because the song lends itself to ridiculousness. It's like you know, do you think I'm sexy? No, I don't. Like Tiny Tim, 
did a cover of it and it's hilarious because you know tiny tim's got <laughs> tiny tim's got the sex yes. appeal of a bad road accident right 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 and then a band called the revolting cocks also did a cover of it yeah Revco's version is it, it's okay yeah it's all right it sounds like it sounds a lot like the rod stewart version but with the sort of trademark sort of weird ass industrial style heavy guitar in the background it's all right right yeah all right so uh before we wrap up the show Let's oh. let's get to our trivia question. Trivia question uh, was: Maxwell House uses the uh, the phrase "good to the last drop" to promote their product, uh, but that was actually coined by a U.S. president who was talking about coffee, not necessarily Maxwell House, but Maxwell House kind of commandeered it, got glommed onto it. Which president, speaking of coffee, said, "Hmm, good to the last drop." I, I feel like I should guess more than one president at this, just because I can rationalize like three or four different answers. Okay, I'm going to go with what I know, and I know that the first guy to get his photograph taken was James K. Polk. Uh huh. So that's who I'm going with. All right. James K. Polk. Sour-faced 15th president of the United States. Whenever I, whenever you said that you were going to guess more than one president, I thought you were going to shotgun and say, Mount Rushmore, which would, be a, <laughs> which would have been a solid guess because it was our friend Teddy Roosevelt who said, good to the ah, last He was one of my contenders for that. Mm-hmm. But I figured he, wouldn't, he wasn't saying it about coffee. He was saying it about like killing Spaniards on San Juan Hill or... Yep. Uh, also, speaking of photographs... Teddy Roosevelt also famously showed how not to smile for the camera. <laughs> you know, for all you know, like he got shot that day. He got shot a couple times, that guy. So. He, he looks like he was about to kill you in that whenever he smiled. Right, yes. yep. All right. But that wraps up the show for this week. We will see you next week, everyone. Have a great, have a great week. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, everybody. Bye, guys. A special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Find us or message us on Facebook and Instagram at Twibly, or T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Subscribe if you haven't already, and tell your friends. They probably need a cool podcast to listen to as well. And if you don't like this week's episode, there'll be one next week, and it'll probably be better. <laughs>